Hello, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. I just want to say thank you to all of our online donors that make this podcast possible. Today we are looking at John chapter 16, and this episode is entitled, God is with and for and against the world. Normally at Paradox, we like to talk about large swaths of scripture, but today is different because today we're looking at just two verses in John chapter 16, verse 32 and 33. Now these verses unfold when Jesus is at a supper, a Passover feast with his disciples. Now this is no ordinary Passover feast. John has told us that Jesus is aware that he is about to die. And John informs us of this knowledge because he wants us to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. Jesus' words have a weight, have a gravity that can only come when you consider that these are Jesus' last words he is speaking as a free man. So Jesus speaks and Jesus speaks for a while from John chapter 13 to 14 to 15 to 16. All of these words are spoken at this Passover feast with his disciples. And the last words he says to his disciples before he prays in John chapter 17 are found in verse 32 and 33. When he looks at his disciples and he says, look, a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each one to his own home, and I will be left alone. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have trouble and suffering, but take courage, for I have conquered the world. What does it mean when Jesus Christ, who Christians profess to be the Son of God, tells his disciples, take courage, for I have conquered the world. I think that we can actually see what this means to several Christians today by how Christians are reacting to the pandemic that we are currently experiencing. Most businesses are taking a financial hit during this time. This is a direct result of our state's decision to shelter in place, to encourage people to stay home and not go out and buy things or act like life is normal. And while most businesses are struggling, there are some businesses and industries that are surging. The Los Angeles Times on March 16 ran an article that told us and informed us that gun sales are surging in many U.S. states, especially in those hit hardest by the coronavirus, California, New York, and Washington. So in response to a virus infecting people on a global scale, most people in California have reacted by thinking to themselves, you know what I need right now? Guns. And this may come as a surprise to you, but no medical expert has ever stood up and said, you know what will save us from this disease? More guns. Now, when you look closely at the demographics of California, the Pew Research Center found that in 2014, about 63% of all adults in California identified as Christian. Now, this is a little lower than the national average, but remember, two-thirds of Californians identify Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
And when a pandemic hits, that same state that identifies mostly as Christian goes out and buys guns and ammunition. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, but I have to tell you, this doesn't surprise me at all. Because what most Christians believe about Jesus Christ and the end times actually encourages them to stockpile weapons and munitions during a pandemic. Allow me to explain. Most Christians I know believe that Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, came to this earth to die on a cross for your sins and for my sins. We then have a choice to make. We can believe in Jesus Christ and live or doubt that Jesus Christ died for us and we will die as well. Either way, no matter what you believe, a massive amount of death is coming at the end of time because God is angry with the people on this planet and the planet itself. So if you can believe in Jesus, then you will somehow survive with the righteous few while God murders all of the masses that are wicked. And when these Christians talk about heaven, they talk about how heaven will be the place where the righteous few can finally live in the fullness of God's will and no longer have to tolerate the wicked masses that drag humanity down time and time again. In other words, for many Christians, the primary work of God is to separate the righteous from the wicked. Therefore, in that theological framework, we also partner with the work of God whenever we separate and push away people who are not like us and we disconnect from them in order to preserve our own religious piety and holiness. Now, to understand where this idea eventually leads, the end game of this theological framework where God separates the righteous from the wicked, I would like to bring in a philosopher from 1999 named Neo from the movie The Matrix. If we asked Neo, can you tell us what the end game is of this theological idea, he would say to us, guns, lots of guns. And the reason why guns are the ultimate theological endgame of this idea is because God wants to separate people. God wants to disconnect people from other people. And so weapons are designed to keep people at a distance. Get off my lawn because I need to protect what's mine. I grew up in church school and going to church my whole life. The majority of the theology that I heard was that I needed to be very suspicious and distance myself from atheists and agnostics because they would cause me to doubt and put my own eternal salvation in jeopardy. Think about that for a moment. That is ultimately leading us toward us stockpiling weapons in the name of God. Let that idea sink in for a moment. This idea that I need to be distant from other people because they may tarnish my idea of God and God would in turn keep me out of heaven. That can only make sense if we believe that God's work is to separate the righteous from the wicked. And when we look at this theological idea and stand under it, it tells us something about the character of God from this viewpoint. 
This idea is ultimately a belief that God is an adversary opposed to and against the world and all of humanity. So when Jesus says the words at a dinner table, in the world you have trouble and suffering, but take courage, I have conquered the world. If you believe that God's primary work is to separate the righteous from the wicked, then Jesus' words at this dinner table are ultimately adversarial words. Jesus is encouraging Jesus' own troops and saying to them, don't worry, that other side isn't going to win. Don't worry, he tells the disciples, I will not allow the wicked masses to triumph over the righteous few. Is that who Jesus Christ was? We Christians believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and so we would assume that if this is who God actually is, then Jesus would be interested in separating people, in pushing people further away in an effort to tell us this is who God is. Now, these words are recorded by a human being named John. And if John was on this podcast, I would love to ask him if this is who Jesus actually is, to which I believe John would tell us, why don't you read the whole story that I wrote down rather than just a few verses here and a few verses there? So John would invite us to read the story of Jesus from the very beginning and consider all that John wrote when we are trying to understand who Jesus Christ was. So let's start from the beginning. John 1, 1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now it's here that John is referencing he as Jesus Christ. And from here on out, I would like to change the pronoun he with the word Christ to remind us that John is talking about the eternal side, the divine side of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So John writes, Christ was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Christ and without Christ, not one thing came into being. So John wants you to look at the entire world and to see every living and breathing thing in the world as part of God's will. Nothing came into this planet that Jesus Christ did not want to be on this planet. So all things are created by God and through God. And whatever that inspiration behind all of creation is, ultimately came into being in Jesus. Verse 4, John writes, What has come into being in Christ was not guns, was not weapons, but was life. And the life was the light of all people. Now, when you look closely at the words, all people, we should take it seriously and think about all people. Every person from every religious background, every denomination, and every expression of faith. Every person from every ethnicity, every person from every sexual orientation and gender identity, every person can receive this light that was inspired by the eternity of creation. This verse, verse 4 of chapter 1 in John's gospel, is a really big deal. 
To give you some perspective on how big of a deal this is, Richard Rohr, who is one of my personal heroes, wrote about it in a book called The Universal Christ. In the first chapter, he writes these words, realization of our oneness in Christ is the only cure for human loneliness. For me too, it is the ultimate meaning of life. The only thing that gives meaning and purpose to every life. That's a rather big deal coming from somebody who is looking back at all of his life devoted to study of the gospel and who Jesus was and coming away by saying, let me tell you the meaning of life, realizing our oneness in Christ. Now, if as a 20-year-old, I would have heard Richard Rohr's words, I would have responded by saying, are you serious? Are you serious, Richard Rohr? Because if what you are saying is true, then almost everything I was taught in the church my entire life is wrong. And as a 20-year-old, I would have heard Richard Rohr say those words and asked him the question, are you sure you know what you are talking about? Because I'm 20 years old and I just dropped out of film school. I'm a pretty smart guy. Where do you get this crazy idea that Jesus wants us to realize our oneness in Christ together? Everything I was taught in school and in church told me that God wanted to separate us from the wicked people. And in response to those words, I think Richard Rohr would say, let me be very clear. The ultimate meaning of life is to realize our oneness in Christ. And Richard Rohr would reject the notion, reject the theological idea that the primary work of God is to separate the righteous from the wicked. He would say that's wrong or that is not who I perceive God to be. Instead, if realizing our oneness in Christ is the ultimate meaning of life, then what that means is the primary work of God is to bring together all of humanity, to unify human beings in all of their differences. And if that idea is true, then God is not an adversary to the world and to humanity, but instead is an advocate with and for the world. God is on our side in this existence. And when John writes these words, what has come into being in Christ was life, and the life was the light of all people, he's telling us that life has come forth, and God wants you and wants me to thrive in love while we're here on this planet. Now, in the same verse, John uses a brilliant metaphor that he keeps returning to throughout his gospel. He describes this life in Christ as light of all the people. John's primary metaphor for communicating the infinite, transcendent, loving, and hopeful message of Jesus Christ is light. This is a brilliant metaphor because you and I can't actually see light. We can only see light reflecting off of things. And in the same way, Jesus Christ offers us a way to see all three things through a filter of love. Now, most Christians I know often perceive God through the metaphor of a judge, someone who is waiting for us to make mistakes and counting our sins. This does not come from John's gospel. 
In fact, if John was on this podcast and he heard us describing God as a judge, he would ask us, where did you get that idea from? I believe that John would encourage us to remove that metaphor from our understanding of God and replace it with the understanding of light. This is necessary because in the next verse, what John says talks about what his gospel is rooted in. Verse 5, he says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. In other words, this message of Jesus is ultimately a message of hope. Yes, darkness is real. Yes, suffering occurs. Yes, there are times that it seems that the darkness is stronger than the light, but no matter what happens, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. At this point, if you're starting to ask the question, wait, does God really want to separate us? I would say that's a legitimate question because John, if he really believes that's who Jesus was, would start his gospel off in a completely different way. And John tells us through this entire story that God desires to unify us, to bring us together. And the more that we are drawn toward each other is the closer that we follow Jesus. But don't take my word for it. Instead, read the gospel of John for yourself. Because in verse 14, John gives us his thesis statement when he says, and the word became flesh and lived among us. Do you want to see what it looks like for God to live a human life? Then look to Jesus. And what Jesus Christ does is rather stunning. Now, growing up in church school and going to church, I was often told that I needed to avoid any and all parties with alcohol. I did this because the tradition I grew up in told me repeatedly that drinking or consuming alcohol was a sin which is a bit of a problem because in John chapter two, Jesus goes to a wedding where they serve gasp alcohol. Now the church I grew up in would have looked at that wedding and described it as a worldly wedding. This is a wedding that is rooted in the ways of the world and they would encourage me not to go to that wedding. But that's where Jesus is. Not only that, but Jesus is the one bringing and making the wine. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus says, come to the wedding and you have to drink this alcohol as much as the presence of Jesus is found where my religion told me he was not. In the very next chapter, Jesus is speaking to a religious leader who believes that God is in an adversarial relationship with the world. Jesus seeks to correct him by telling him very famously, for God so loved the world. God loves this world, Jesus says. That's why God is still inspiring and speaking to people today. In John chapter 8, a corrupt judicial system brings a woman before Jesus and says that she deserves the death penalty. They are angry with her. They are ready to kill her. And they say, do you believe in our system of justice or not as outlined in the book of Moses? Jesus doesn't spend any time trying to figure out whether or not this woman is guilty. Instead, he views the whole system as corrupt. 
And Jesus seeks to restore humanity for this woman who has been judged by the system. And he advocates for the woman who, according to her society, deserved death. The people who accused her then left because they were frightened of Jesus. And in the very next verse after this story is concluded, he says to the people around him, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Apparently, to have the light of life is to advocate for those who the system deems as wicked. To be in solidarity with those that society tries to distance itself from. A few chapters later in John chapter 12, just before Jesus goes into the Last Supper that we began this sermon with, he says to some Gentiles, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. This idea that we can unify or see the expression of the divine in all humanity is ultimately what we are going to, is ultimately the purpose of life. In the very next chapter, Jesus sits down for a Passover meal with his disciples, even though he knows he is hours away from his death. And the last words he says to his disciples are those words that we began this podcast with. Look, a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and I will be left alone. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have trouble and suffering, but take courage, for I have conquered the world. Well, if you're like me, when you consider all of John's Gospels, these words do sound like Jesus is in an adversarial relationship with the world. But then you look closer at these words and what we have gone through in our lives today and it's possible that Jesus is talking about something else entirely. To understand that, I want to talk about one of my favorite bands in existence. I'm talking about the band Coldplay. Now, I understand that it's not really breaking news when a white guy in his mid-30s likes the band Coldplay. But I have no apologies to make. I love Coldplay, and I'm not sorry about it. In 2011... Coldplay released their fifth album called Milo Zelato. And when I got this album on iTunes, I looked through the track list and I remember there was one track, number five, that really stood out to me just from the title. The title of the fifth track on Milo Zelato is Us Against the World. Now, this was a rather unorthodox track name because when you think about people that the world has persecuted, Coldplay is definitely not at the top of the list. This is a band that regularly sells out football stadiums and can travel anywhere in the world and be just as popular despite language and culture barriers. I have seen them both at the Hollywood Bowl and at the Rose Bowl. Both times those bowls were sold out. So I assume that before I even listened to this song, this would be just the whiniest, most privilege-ridden, most naive and tone-deaf track there is on the album. But then I listened to it, and I actually kind of liked it. And I was intrigued as to what inspired 
Coldplay, one of the most popular musical acts on the planet, to write a song called Us Against the World. In an interview in 2011, Chris Martin talked about why they chose to write that song. His words are these, the root of all that Coldplay creates is to do with our friendship. There's a song on the album called Us Against the World, and that's definitely our feeling at the moment. We've been through every single cliche that a band goes through, from addictions to film star marriages. You see, for Coldplay, the world represents any force that threatens to tear their band apart, that threatens to separate them rather than unify them. So between all of the money and the fame and the egos and the people who rip them off and the people they don't give enough time to and the addictions, Coldplay says there's all of these forces trying to tear us apart. Yes, we are popular, but those things that are trying to tear us apart, we're against that. The things that want to separate us, we're trying to hold it together despite those things. And when I read John's gospel, Jesus often talks about the world. And in my opinion, Jesus has a very similar definition of what the world is to what Coldplay has when they talk about us against the world. In John's gospel, the world is any force that threatens the unity of all humanity. God is interested and God works toward unifying all human beings. And anything that tries to separate humanity is something that God works against. So when Jesus Christ at a Passover feast tells his disciples, in the world you have trouble and suffering, he is telling the disciples, trouble and suffering will try to tear us apart. And in the midst of all of the trouble and suffering, Jesus tells his disciples to take courage. This is a hopeful message. I have conquered the world. And Jesus Christ reveals a rather stunning paradox about God. God is with and against and for the world all at the same time. Now, it's here that you may be listening to this podcast and thinking to yourself, Craig Hadley is such a hypocrite. Because here he is, a pastor of a church, a Christian church in America, and few people have tried to separate us as much as the church in America. To which I would say to you, you're absolutely right. The church is the world that Jesus is talking about. And anytime the church stands up and works to separate people, works to pit narratives of us against them, tells us that God can't stand us and God only likes a few of us, then the church is the world that Jesus is talking about. And if you have borne the brunt of the church working against the will of God, I believe that Jesus would say to you, take courage for I have conquered the world. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the most discouraging things about this pandemic is the lack of leadership from our elected officials. And while I disagree with some people and agree with others that are in charge of representing us, the people that consistently drive me crazy are politicians who care more about being reelected than the people they represent. These politicians are the world 
that Jesus is talking about. And if you have been discouraged like me through the midst of this entire pandemic, I believe that Jesus would say to us, take courage for I have conquered the world. And then there is the virus itself. This virus has driven us to all of our own homes. This virus has placed barriers between us and made us suspicious of close personal interaction. And because this virus is threatening to tear us apart, I believe that this virus is the world that Jesus is talking about. And if you've been stressed or frightened or anxious about this virus, I believe that Jesus would say to you and to me, take courage for I have conquered the world. I believe that we should trust the words of Jesus. And I believe that this virus will not succeed in tearing us apart. We are going to conquer this virus. And when you consider our faith in Jesus Christ, I believe we are going to conquer this virus in three ways. The first way that we are going to conquer this virus is that we are going to trust epidemiologists. Now, if we are talking about how God is reflected in all people, then we have to understand that God is reflected in epidemiologists. And these people, these contagious disease experts, are a gift to us in a time of pandemic. These people have given their lives to preparing for a moment like this. And the more that we trust and elevate the voices of epidemiologists in the midst of this outbreak, the better we are going to be. I personally am a theologian, and I will tell you theologians will not save us in the midst of this virus. We need to learn to elevate and trust contagious disease experts and to do what they say. This is especially important in 2020 because as you know, the internet can tell you whatever it is that you want to hear. Not only that, but news sources are driven by clicks and viewer counts. And so they are driven by a different motivating factor than epidemiologists. We need to have discernment for what voices we listen to and what stories we share and who can actually help us in the midst of this crisis. If you are reading a news story that's telling you about the virus and they do not quote epidemiologists, do not trust that news story. Do not share that news story. But if an epidemiologist is quoted, especially if they're from a reputable organization or university, then they probably have a real good idea of what they're talking about, right? We as Christians need to elevate their voices and show that we trust these people because we view them as a gift of God during these troubling times. Now, at this point, you may object and say, Craig is such a hypocrite. I can't believe I have to say this again, but Craig is such a hypocrite because the church is a big reason why America doesn't trust scientists, to which I would say you are absolutely right. The church in America has led her people toward a massive distrust of scientists. This is a sin, and the American churches need to repent and change their attitudes as soon as possible. 
Christians need to lead the way and tell Americans to trust scientists again, to believe what they are saying and to elevate them to the level of expert because they are going to be the ones who help us through this viral outbreak. So the first way that we are going to conquer this virus is to trust epidemiologists. The second way we are going to conquer this virus is specifically to people of faith. Jesus in John 16, around this dinner table looks at his disciples and he says, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. Jesus, just hours before his death, is interested in giving his disciples not a call to action, not weapons to defend themselves, but peace, calm in the midst of the storm. Now, when you look closely at what happens next, Jesus goes to a garden. He is arrested, but when he is arrested, he is both calm, peaceful, and ultimately nonviolent. At this point in the story, Peter pulls out a sword and begins to attack the people who are arresting Jesus. And Jesus, rather than encouraging him to trust his weapons, discourages him and tells him to put the sword away. Weapons are not an appropriate way to respond to fear. Jesus then is brought before the religious leaders and they hurl all kinds of accusations at him. But when you read John's story, the thing that you can tell about Jesus is that he is calm, peaceful, and honest. From the religious establishment, Jesus goes before the governor of Palestine, Pontius Pilate. And when Jesus is before him, as a corrupt trial is unfolding, Jesus is calm, peaceful, and honest. These are all fearful situations, and Jesus finds ways to respond to fear, not with violence, not with weapons, but with calm, with peacefulness, and with honesty. Now, I will tell you that I believe it's important for us to trust epidemiologists, but there is a point where I can't do anything else beyond what they say. It's here that I pray. And I will tell you that I've prayed more in the last two weeks than I have prayed in the last two years. I've spoken honestly to God about my fears, my anxieties. I have asked God to give me time and space to heal, to hope, and to have peace. And I know that things are really chaotic and up in the air right now. I understand that. And I will tell you the thing I keep coming back to is prayer. Prayer as silence in the midst of noise. Prayer as peace in the midst of fear. Prayer as hope in the face of despair. Let's be honest with God in our prayer life because that's who Jesus was over and over again. Jesus was honest, but may it ultimately ground us in the peace and the calm and the hope of Jesus Christ. So we are going to conquer this virus by trusting epidemiologists, but for people of faith, we can ground ourselves in hope and peace through the practice of prayer. Which brings us to the third way that I believe we can conquer this virus. The third way involves an evangelist that I heard a few years ago speaking to a crowd of over 1,000 people. 
Now, this evangelist was preaching. People were eating it up. He was talking about the urgency of the gospel and how we needed to go out and convert people for Christ. And in the midst of that urgency, the crowd was with him. They were loving what he was saying. But there was one story that really stuck out to me in the midst of all of this affirmation. And the story that he was telling was talking about the the need to convert people all the time. And specifically, he talked about grocery store workers who are probably depressed and don't have Jesus in their lives. And so it was important for everybody at this meeting to smile at the grocery store clerks when we go through line and to tell them that they're doing a good job because you can potentially, he said, win that soul for Christ. There was a hearty amen in response to those words, but they didn't sit real well with me. (laughs) And those words didn't sit well with me because it ultimately saw this human being as something less than the person who was doing the converting, right? However, all of this kind of flipped on its head recently when going to the grocery store has all of a sudden become this very different ordeal. We now have to line up and wait our turn to go in a grocery store. And people are limiting how many people can be inside of a grocery store. Not only that, but this is one of the few public spaces remaining in America that we are encouraged to go to. So as you can imagine, grocery store clerks are people who see other people who are out and about for the first time in days. And we can imagine that they bear the brunt of all of our social anxieties and fears in the midst of this pandemic. And it's here that I come back to those evangelists' words with a very different endgame in mind. I think it's absolutely important for us to recognize that our grocery store clerks are tired. They're worn out and people probably aren't treating them at their best right now. Can we be kind and compassionate and encouraging to them in the midst of this chaos. Now, we don't do this to convert them. We don't do this to win their soul for Christ. We do this because we believe that we are one in the body of Christ. And when someone is tired, we are all tired. When someone is bearing the brunt of our anxiety, we are all bearing the brunt of that anxiety. We need to be kind and compassionate and patient To people who are on the front lines, whether they're grocery store clerks, janitors, healthcare workers, whoever is still working in the midst of this shutdown. And we do all of this to get back to what Richard Rohr would tell us is the purpose and meaning of life, to realize that we are one. And this is the third way that we are going to conquer this virus. For us to realize day in and day out that we are one. It can be daunting to watch the news right now. I know that story well. But what's so important for you and for me to do is to keep the human aspect alive of this pandemic and to not reduce people to numbers of people infected and numbers of deaths that occurred today. Instead, we need to keep the heartbeat of humanity alive and well as we tell the story of what is happening to us today. So I'd like to close this podcast by telling you several stories that help me realize that we are one. 
Because the further we go down that road, the further we are living in the footsteps of Jesus. So the first story is something I saw on Twitter. It's a story that unfolded in Ireland where a young couple had their first son. Now, while that is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around in the midst of this pandemic, trying to raise a kid while social distancing at the same time, this young couple in Ireland posted a picture of their son meeting his grandfather for the very first time. Now, this picture takes place with the grandfather outside in the front yard of this young couple's house, and he is standing by glass and looking lovingly at his grandson that he cannot hold at this time. The story makes my heart ache because I know how meaningful it was when my parents and my mother-in-law held my babies for the first time. We are one. I also want to tell you the story of Geneva Wood, who was in a nursing home in Seattle. The coronavirus came and infected the nursing home that Geneva Wood was staying at, and she was 90 years old and got the virus herself. There were several people from her nursing home that died, and Geneva Wood, they assumed, would die as well. In fact, she's kept getting worse and worse as a 90-year-old, that they told her family that it was time to say goodbye to their grandmother and their great-grandmother. So the family said their goodbyes. They assumed that this would be the end of Geneva Wood's life. And she went to bed assuming that she might die in her sleep. But a funny thing happened. She woke up the next day and she started to feel better. And Geneva Wood, at the age of 90, overcame impossible odds and somehow, someway recovered from the coronavirus and is currently back home and living with her family. We are one. I look at my own kids, Maya and Bodhi, a six-year-old and a three-year-old. I think one thing that I'm really scared about for my kids in the midst of this uncertainty is that they might all of a sudden start to get scared themselves. And while they feel like several things are unfair, they can't understand why they can't go see Nana, why they can't go to their cousin's house or their friend's houses, there was this moment where my wife set up a teepee in the middle of our living room. And right before they went to bed, it was dark outside. They turned off all the lights. And in the middle of our living room, they turned on some camping lights that they had. And they sat down and my daughter, Maya, who's six, read stories by camping lights to my son, Bodhi, who's three. And I remember looking at their faces and thinking that they were content and they were happy. And then looking at my wife and thinking, we're doing our job right now. We are one. I think of Josh Gad, who is the voice of Olaf in the Frozen franchise, who every day right now during this pandemic is reading a story uh, for all kids in America, wherever they may be. And our kids love hearing Josh Gad read stories. He does amazing voices. And he just has a way of reading it that's just, you know, it's just the right way to read a story. And these stories have been deeply meaningful to my family, to my kids, to my wife and I. But there was one Instagram post he posted in the midst 
of all of this where he showed how fearful he was. Like he had tears streaming down his face and he said he felt anxious and overwhelmed. And this crying came from the fact that he was having to tell his kids no all the time and that they couldn't see family members. And he said, this is just such a difficult weight to bear being the parents of kids in the midst of this pandemic. And when he shared that, I felt like it was extremely valuable because he named a lot of the fears that I had. And I realized that I was not alone. We are one. On Friday night, I received a story about a community in Tennessee that is working to stay close despite the distance between themselves. And what these residents of a community in Tennessee are doing is they're placing teddy bears in their windows and they're encouraging parents to take their kids on teddy bear scavenger hunts. And kids walk through the city or they drive through the city and they count how many teddy bears they see in the window. And you go to this community in Tennessee and there are hundreds of teddy bears hidden in windows for kids to find. We are one. One of the videos that's meant the most to me during this time of social distancing was posted from Midtown Atlanta. Now in Midtown Atlanta, there is a hospital that is surrounded by several high-rise apartment buildings. And what happens in this video is just deeply moving to me because the people every night when the shift change happens, they go out onto their balconies, they watch the new, new nurses come in and the nurses getting off their shift come out and they begin to cheer wildly. We are one. And when I think about this pandemic and what I'm most concerned about or what my biggest fear is, I think about my friends and family members who are in the healthcare industry, who are on the front lines of this pandemic. And I just worry about their health, their well being, their ability to not be burnt out. And I worry about them not receiving the proper protective equipment to take care of the people who are sick. And I, I got to tell you, I pray all the time for my friends and family who are in healthcare. And I pray for the friends and family of others who are in healthcare and just all healthcare workers around the globe right now. And the reason. I can keep these people in my mind is because I keep trying to humanize who they are. I remind myself that when I hear stories about people taking care of others in New York, that these are friends and family of other people as well. And when they struggle, I struggle. And when we celebrate, when they celebrate, we should celebrate. And I tell you all this to remind ourselves and to realize that we are one. And it breaks my heart when politics is what's preventing these people from getting the proper equipment to treat people with coronavirus. And my hope and my prayer and my work, and I hope that your work too, can be let's get these professionals the equipment they need 
to deliver the best care for people who are sick. Because we are one. To my siblings in Christ, we are going to conquer this virus. We are going to do this first and foremost by trusting epidemiologists. We are going to do this as people of faith by grounding ourselves in hope and peace. And we are going to do this as human beings by realizing that we are one. And this is what I believe Jesus was talking about when he said these words so long ago. Look, a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and I will be left alone. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have trouble and suffering, but take courage, for I have conquered the world. To my siblings in Christ, may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. <laughs>